custodians of the planet, acknowledge and pays respect to the past, present and future traditional custodians and elders of this nation, and the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. are with Custodians of the Planet. I'm Denise Yildiz. Custodians of the Planet brings consciousness to planetary challenges and looks at different perspectives regarding the tensions and harmony of human activities in a changing climate. COVID-19 has been and continues to be an extremely disruptive global event. It has shaken our world and the way we live. Times like this can really highlight the importance of design and how design changes and innovations can have a remarkable impact on how we behave. Creative ideas and solutions are popping up to combat COVID-19, such as social distancing kits and urban installation at various places like beaches, playgrounds, outdoor dining, streets, offices, you name it. Today to talk about the architecture and the days of COVID-19, Rory Hyde is with us. Rory is a designer, curator and writer based in London. His work is focused on new forms of design practice and redefining the role of the architect today. He is the creator of contemporary architecture and urbanism at the Victoria and Albert Museum and adjunct senior research fellow at the University of Melbourne and design advocate for the Mayor of London. Rory, welcome to Custodians of the Planet. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Denise. Great to be here. Let's begin by acknowledging the massive disruption of COVID-19. Now we are aware of the devastating impacts of the spread of viral illness. Do you think that the way we design, build and inhabit cities may ever be the same? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think that, you know, the short answer is we don't know. We don't really know what's going to happen. But we can make some sort of predictions based on what we've seen happening so far. And I think that it's it's useful to think of this in different time spans. So immediately we've already seen that, you know, social distancing in, in London, it's two metres, I think it's a bit less in, in Australia, you know, has kind of overlay this new geometry onto the streets which we which we're not used to so we've been widening streets here to allow people space to walk past each other on on the footpaths we've been creating new bike lanes we've been you know introducing a whole new set of graphic standards for letting people know what the rules are you need to wear masks in shops you need to keep your distance you need to wash your hands you know all of these things so that's what we're seeing in the short term. And, I, and I'm not, I don't think that will stay. Well, I hope that that won't stay. <laughs> I think that will be, you know, from another year, perhaps we'll have to work within these constraints. So it's a very temporary thing in the, in the time span of cities. In the medium term, we're seeing new kinds of ways that the city is being reshaped, uh, particularly around things like real estate, property, 
um, I guess the two big impacts are lockdown, people living in the in their homes, they've had to kind of confront their, um, you know, what it means to live in a home all the time rather than just, you know, in during the evenings or, you know, sleeping there while you go off to the office. And the other thing is working from home. So where people are not required in the office or they're able to do their jobs remotely, they've realised, well, why am I paying all this rent for this house in, this, in the centre of the city? Couldn't I be doing it from a mountain top with a beautiful view of a lake or um, at mm. least to move further out to the suburbs? Further out in the suburbs where I have a bit more space, I have a garden, I have some more room to move and I can still, you know, commute into the office a couple of days a week if, if I need be. So I think that is pot, that will possibly change the structure of cities um, in terms of how we inhabit them. And then in terms of how we design and build them, well, and then the, I, I guess these two things will will kind of add up in, in the long term. And maybe in the long term, we, I, I hope we can change the way we design and build because at the moment, I think we're still living in a kind of hangover from the 20th century where everything is driven in a very singular, focused, top-down way. Yeah. You know, we've, many of us have been in, on lockdown. We've been stuck in our homes. And if it's a small house, we've been bursting at the seams wondering, you know, why <laughs> couldn't I have more room here? So people mm. are thinking of now getting out to the suburbs or getting out of the city altogether. And there's been plenty of kind of opinion pieces about this, you know, calling for the death of the city, the end of density and so on. And I guess it's sort of, you know, we've seen some statistics from real estate agents saying that, you know, a lot of their searches now are for people looking outside of cities. So there is some interest there, but I, I, it's hard to say if it will really happen. I mean, it's the sort of thing that people said after 9-11 in New York, that that was the end of the city, that people wouldn't feel safe, that they'd want to get out of this sort of sense of feeling like they're a target. And that didn't happen. The city just became stronger and stronger. So I think, we're, you know, it's hard to know whether that will be the case. And then the longer term trends really are, I hope, about our sort of relationship to nature. That's the sort of bigger shift that needs to happen. And, and that is much harder and it's not inevitable and it requires a lot of work from everyone so you know what i mean is we're still living really the, the pandemic and the kind of you know issues that it's caused in terms of our health systems or in terms of our transport systems the, the sort of broad governance of how we live together in cities or anywhere really has shown that to be extremely fragile and not re resilient to shocks like a pandemic um, and in order to kind of overcome those shocks, we need to rethink how we live together. And for a lot of people have been talking about a kind of new relationship to nature, new relationship to ecology, but also new relationships to care and caring for each other. So social infrastructures, you know, mutual cooperation, helping your neighbours, looking after each other. We've, and we've seen bits of this happen through the pandemic. You know, people jumping into action, doing shopping for their neighbours, um, protecting the elderly who are more vulnerable and hope. But really that, you know, in order for that to stick, in order for that to kind of reshape how we live, requires a big cultural shift, but also a shift in how we design our spaces. And that, the, that I guess, is the bit that I'm really interested in is, you know, how do we make our cities and neighbourhoods encourage that sort of cooperation, collaboration, care for each other 
rather than this very individualistic kind of corporate attitude to the reason we live in cities. And, you know, we need to, it's a sort of good reminder that the reason we live in cities is, is to be with people, is to be with each other. And, you know, through this crisis, we've had to look af after each other. And hopefully we can now use that as a sort of foundation for a new kind of city that we can build in the next 5, 10, 20, 100 years. Mm, I really like the way you frame it. And I, I hope you're right. Maybe in maybe 20, 30 years, we will look at this pandemic and say, like, that's how everything has started to shift and, you know, change and become a bit more collective dropping that individualistic lifestyle and becoming more mutualistic and collaborative i think it won't be wrong to say covid19 is a catalyst for rethinking the way we live as you said from a design perspective do you see covid19 as a window of opportunity for regenerative design or sustainability transitions yeah it's a good question I mean, I think that, yes, it, it, there's a certain, I mean, I'm not sure how connected those things are. I, I see, I see COVID-19 as a, as almost a social crisis, you know, more than a infrastructural one or a technological one. And I think that the way that it's going to change architecture is through the sort of social questions that we'll be expecting architecture to answer. So for example, I think we're going to see a, a big push towards multi-generational living. You know, this is something where families have become much more atomized over the last 50, 100 years, where you see individual families uh, getting smaller. I think in Australia, the average is 1.8 children per family who, has, who have children. And, you know, that's a long way from where we were 100 years ago. We had five or six people mm -hmm. per household. Um, and that meant that you had multiple multiple generations in a household. You had parents, you had grandparents and children all living together. So I think we might see a return to that, hopefully, now that we are, well, yeah, now that, I, you know, a lot of people have lost their parents, especially in this country. It's, you know, the death toll has been massive, something like 60,000 excess deaths. And I think that where hopefully that leads to a different appreciation of care of who does the caring and we may want to bring those things back closer to us and sort of redesign the geometry of our lives to be able to work in a more flexible manner so that means working from home perhaps going in one or two days a week to care in a more flexible manner so instead of outsourcing that problem to the state we might take more responsibility for us for it ourselves by having our parents our grandparents live with us and so on and yeah, th this will have a huge impact on, on architecture at the scale of the house, but more importantly, I think at the scale of the neighbourhood, where that's where a lot of this um, social infrastructure is going to need to come in. And I'm talking about, you know, social clubs for elderly people to tackle um, challenges of loneliness, informal and more formal childcare situations for sharing that responsibility across different families. I'm thinking of things like you know, new kinds of activities or shops, which are all very local. And, you know, that's going to have a big impact on how we live and on how we structure our cities. Yeah. Yeah, there is there's one term called glocal because everyone's experiencing the same thing. But all this pandemic is just pushing everyone to be more 
local like shopping locally and as you said just like hanging in the neighborhood not traveling so yeah it's 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 an interesting transition yeah Yeah. i mean maybe if i if i can come back to your question on on sustainability you know i mean one of the things that we've seen really take off in this so far is the bicycle and you know that's hugely encouraging hopefully to get cars off the road you know people see the bicycle as as really one of the safest ways to travel now if you don't want to go on public transport for example so we've had a huge we've had a huge boom in bicycle sales here and a huge investment very quickly in bicycle infrastructure and i think you know for somebody like me that's the that's the future we want we want to you know and this is a, a great catalyst as we say to push us towards that future but i think you know we shouldn't underestimate the the potential for the flip side of that the opposite future which is to say okay well if people are turning away from from public transport could they be instead of turning to the bicycle turning to the car and mm. actually you know, i've seen some reports of you know, increasing sales for um, private vehicle ownership. So, you know, the the question and the challenge now is how do we, you know, what are the levers that we have, either as kind of cultural levers or policy levers, to push towards one f- future versus another? And I think that requires kind of operations at all scales so that we don't just reinforce the old world, the car world, the carbon world, but we can use this as a way to leapfrog into the next world, which is one of, you know, bikes and localism, as, as you say, you know, that it's, we've sort of redefined the scale of our neighborhood to something which is more within reach rather than something which is center dependent, center periphery, mm. requiring a long commute. So I think that's, you know, and, and when I say, you know, we, I mean architects, I mean designers, I mean the media, I mean policymakers, um, politicians, and so on, to really set that vision, you know, to make something exciting that that future, and then to invest in it to kind of back it up, and and backing it up means, you know, building that infrastructure that's safe, cycle infrastructure. It means subsidising the um, kind of transition from cars to bikes, buyback schemes, you know. It's, cheaper bikes and so on and, and it's and I think that you know the other aspect of this of this crisis is the economic one there's the health crisis but there's also the mm. um, the uh, yeah unemployment crisis is going to be a huge one and we haven't really seen that yet because we've had these schemes you know fellow schemes which have supported people out of work but that tidal wave is really about to land and I think that we're just going to have to develop ways of living which are more affordable for everybody, for the governments, but also for the citizens. So, for example, I read this wonderful statistic yesterday about the cost of the car versus different um, transport modes. One car trip costs the state 75 cents, and that's because of the investment in roads, and which are hugely expensive and all of the um, subsequent costs. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it even includes health costs, but that's the other big thing that's coming, which is around respiratory health, pollution, air pollution, and so on. A trip on a public on public transport on a bus or a train costs the state 30 cents. So that's just the you know running of that service minus the ticket that you've paid. 
that a, a trip on a bicycle gives the state 40 cents. So you're saving the state all that money and a, and a <laughs> walking trip gives the state 60 cents. So it's even, you know, it's twice as good as a bicycle. So this, you know, even from the position of a, of a government who's looking at the huge cost of this crisis, there's a huge in, in economic incentive to push towards that sustainable future. And I think that, you know, these are the arguments that we're going to hear much more about as the economic crisis lands and we move past the health crisis. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So you briefly mentioned, but I mean, considering all the things you just mentioned, the roadmap to have this sustainability transitions is up to policymakers, architects, designers, and probably public too, consumers. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Do, do you mind if we, if I pick up on that? Because I think that the the kind of mechanism for transformation is something I'm super interested in at the moment. I'm looking at the work of the economy, the Italian economist Mariana Mazzucato. And she's outlined what she calls mission-driven innovation. Mm. And so rather than innovation being measured or being guided by, you know, the number of patents or the number of academic papers published and so on, which, you know, suggest a sort of level of output, but they don't suggest a goal. She says, no, we need to take inspiration from the moon landings. You know, when Kennedy says, you know, we will get to the moon within the next 10 years, that's the sort of target that we need to set ourselves as uh, you know as societies so she uses this and i think this is a perfect this sustainability transition is a perfect mission which which says that you know we should set a clear target which you know for example all suburbs in australia should be um, zero carbon by 2050 you know that's a really clear mission which has a goal it has a time span and it and it's and it's not limited to one particular sector. So, the, the, you know, most of the ways that we think about innovation are sector dependent. That means that, you know, we say we want to develop an electric car. Well, developing an electric car is great, but it only involves automotive and it does, and it only presumes that that's the future where we just make the, the carbon cars electric. It doesn't allow for different ways of answering that question, which is the broader question of the sustainability transition so a big mission like that can have lots of different ways of answering that question and people can then align their work underneath that mission. And I, and I think that that's a really good way to think about the transition. So the goal, the mission is set from the top government states and those, you know, they might provide uh, funding incentives or even prizes, goals, if you can design a, mm. you know, zero carbon house in the next 10 years or the, if you're the first to do that. You, you win a prize of 10 million for your university or for your company. The, the other way that she sees important is, that, is to therefore incentivize private companies. So to create new markets around these missions. And that I think for architecture and for design is a really big challenge. You know, the, one of the issues I think we have is that we have a, a kind of practice ecosystem which is defined by the private practice. So, you know, I like to, imagine it as architects you know hang up their sign and then they wait for the phone to ring <clears throat> they wait for somebody to ask them to do what they what the client wants to do 
And when you're making a transition or when you're, when you're going towards a new future, no one's going to ask you to do that. No one is going to ring you up and say, can you, you know, design this new future? No, they, they're, you know, we can't outsource the vision. We can't expect other people to have the vision when we're the ones responsible for how our discipline can change. So that's where the missions are really useful, but also new forms of practice. You know, we need to get beyond the private practice. We need to invent new kinds of business models which are working at the lower end of the pyramid, so the broad base. The mm. other thing about you know waiting for the phone to ring is that it's only people who have the money or the means will ring you up. And I think that if we're talking about a big, broad, you know, just transition, then we need to operate at a different scale, not just the top 5% of, you know, earners, but the big base of, you know, the broad population. And we need to develop a new business model to operate there because the current one doesn't work. Nobody with that, you know, particularly with the coming economic crisis, nobody at that level of income or society is going to be able to afford an architect who has or even commission them to redesign their home so how do we rethink what we do in order to operate at that different scale i think that's a really big challenge for mm. the architecture profession yeah i think that's a really important point because it's as you said inclusiveness is really essential and we shouldn't leave anyone behind when we're having this transition so yeah hmm Yeah, I mean, it's those two things, isn't it? It's um, it's inclusiveness, and it's not leaving behind, but it's also operating at scale. Yeah. You know, I think that architecture pretends that it's this public art, but actually, it's this very rarefied private art. You know, the real impact we have on cities is m marginal. It's it's a kind of rounding error, and we need to work out how we can operate at the whole city, not just the kind of exceptional projects which we see in the magazines <laughs> yeah true it seems COVID-19 will challenge design thinking and concepts so let's talk a bit about the workplaces workspaces offices are often located in skyscrapers or large office buildings What's going to happen in these areas? How COVID-19 could impact workplace design? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that, you know, it's useful to think of this in terms of scales or time scales. So immediately we're seeing, you know, it's a big issue where everybody comes in and crowds into the lift or pushes the door. And, you know, these are points of infection. And, you know, there's lots of people working on try to, how to overcome that in the immediate term. But I don't, again, I think that we'll be past this social distancing period within hopefully a year or two years maximum. You know, that's I'm talking about when we have a vaccine. Look, I'm no expert, but you know, this is just what I read, that hopefully these things can start to relax once we've all been inoculated against the virus. But th so therefore, the medium long term is where we need to, you know, set our sights in terms of preparation. And... And I think, yeah, the, the kind of shine on the office is going to come off. The, the central office, I think this, the shine on the office tower in the city is going to come off. And that is, and I say that, but I don't think the office will, will die. But I think we'll have, need to redesign how we think about the office. You know, working from home is great, but having been doing it now for almost six months, 
I'm going slightly mad. <laughs> <laughs> like, everyone is I'm, a bit losing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this, this seemed great at the beginning, but now I'm, you know, really starting to miss it. The the office, and you know, I miss the camaraderie of my colleagues. I miss the, you know, feeling of being connected through just ambient conversation to ideas. I miss the you know, separation between life and work. So I think that when we when we rethink in the office, we're going to need to develop a new, I guess, medium-scale infrastructure of what an office is. And, and I guess what I mean specifically is, you know, I'm here in my neighbourhood, uh, and instead of going all the way into the office five days a week, perhaps I go to the end of the, end of the road, and there's a workspace there which is shared by some of the other workers in my street, Maybe there's 10 of us, 12 of us, and we all chip in to pay some rent for that space. Hopefully my company can pay that rent for me. <laughs> um, we buy, go together, we buy a photocopier, a printer, a coffee machine, and you know some furniture, desk chairs and screens and things. And, and instead of going all the way to the office, I'll go there for the day. So then these aren't my colleagues. I don't work with them. They work, they're doing other jobs. But we've got that sort of you know, social aspect of the office, which I think is really important for people's, you know, mental health. Uh, and I'm able to leave the house. I've got clear demarcations between home and work. Um, and maybe I just do that a couple of days a week. So I'm really excited by this, the kind of neighborhood hub office, which is a new typology that I think will come out of this um, yeah. pandemic. Yeah, I think, I think there are hubs for freelancers most of the time, not for office people. But as you said, maybe it could be just for everyone and it could be just like the local neighborhood hub in this space. Yeah, I think that's the, you know, we've, we've got lots of these co-working spaces. We work and so on, but they're still in the center, you know, they're still True. most then none of them are really in neighborhoods so that's the shift is it's very much like we work but instead of commuting into the center they're, they're located in residential neighborhoods yeah true i think i think it would be really cool so maybe we can get to know our neighbors and you know socialize with the community and exactly yeah 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 let's move on to to my next question it seems to me there can be a trend towards rural areas instead of buckling up in large cities. And this could be a new trend towards lower density living, if you have to name it. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, yeah I think, again, I'm, I'm really unsure how this is going to play out. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 I've seen lots of articles about it and it sort of makes common sense and I'm very suspicious of common sense you know uh, I, I want to see real stories of real people who are leaving the city yeah. um, and the real question is, you know it's it's been possible technologically to work from home for the last 20 or 30 years at least with the internet you know that's been possible for a long long time but it hasn't happened and the reason that it hasn't happened is not because of the technology, but because of the managers. You know, there's this managerial culture where your boss wants to see you at your desk from nine to five, and it's a trust issue. It's a trust question. 
about are you there are you doing your work can i you know control you can i go and interrupt you are you you know present hmm. so the and in a way that you know working from home the lockdown just flushed that out it really just you know said that you're going to have to trust us and i think a lot of managers have realized that they can a lot of staff have realized that they're more effective they're more productive and so we've had this kind of shock test of the remote working and you know hopefully some of that will continue i mean i've seen some a, a company in australia actually called that which is a software developer company <clears throat> closing their office altogether and they'll allow any of their staff to work from anywhere in the world it also means they're able to hire talent anywhere in the world oh, wow. without requiring them to move to australia so it's super interesting you know and especially for a digital technology company that's you know they'll be the first people who are able to do that yeah for me i work in a museum and you know this the physical space of the museum is still really important um the kind of management of the collection is really important the you know being there is, is unavoidable for a lot of the time but a lot of the a lot of my job is is easily done from home you know a lot of it's emails and meetings and i think that we've shown how they can they can happen so i'm i guess i'm interested to see what happens in the in the medium to long term again you know for example my brother who works in advertising has left new york and he's moved to boulder colorado like in the mountains on the west coast uh, where he you know it's cheaper there it's beautiful he can go mountain biking rock climbing and skiing in the winter <laughs> um but is you know and his his boss has incredibly allowed him to keep his job and to work from there but is that going to be true in a year's time or in two years time you know or is he going to get the promotion when he's hmm. you know just a sort of disembodied face on the screen so i think there's a whole lot of other set of social dynamics apart from the technological ones which are about management which are much more important than the you know mere fact of you know being able to do your work from home yeah really interesting hmm you're a creator you just mentioned let's talk about that a little bit how do you think covid-19 will change museums yeah i mean the, the first one is that it, it's had like many companies it's had a huge economic consequence i mean our visitor numbers are down by at least 80% um having reopened only a week ago. Oh wow. And that's really because you know half of our visitors are tourists and so that you know there's practically no tourism at the moment. Mm -hmm. And the rest are people who you know might be in the UK but who are afraid of going on public transport or on the train or staying for, staying near to their homes. So and I think that you know that's it's good it's in a way it's good. You know, we were on a trajectory in the whole. I'm not just talking about the V&A, but I'm talking about the whole museum sector, which was becoming increasingly commercialized and competitive. You know, chasing these big blockbuster shows, huge revenues, huge budgets, huge visitor numbers. You know, cramming people in this um, incredible, you know, 
exuberance of the corporate museum performance and I, that just doesn't work anymore it's just fundamentally broken that system so we need to reinvent what it is that we do and i think that we need to return to the kind of core values of what a museum is for in society you know it's not uh, it's not just for entertainment but it's also about you know it, it forms a really critical cultural and social purpose it's a place where you make sense of the world through objects and i think we need to now slow down and you know focus more on our permanent collections focus more on our acquisitions diversify the stories that we're telling and really become a civic space not just a space of entertainment um, and that's you know that's a big a big project and it requires a total rethink of, of what we're what we are and what we're for and what i'm worried in a way is we will simply kind of struggle on and then try and snap back that we'll we'll you know make it through this crisis and then we'll go try and go back to business as usual immediately after so you know hopefully this is you know this is that opportunity for soul searching that is needed hmm. and, and for a rethink of direction yeah yeah <laughs> beautifully said speaking of soul searching let's talk a bit about the climate moment and i would like to hear your thoughts on the role of designers and architects in the climate moment yeah i mean first of all the, the big climate movement here has been been extinction rebellion and as far as i can tell architects have had little to no impact or, or contribution in extinction rebellion which i think is really interesting because they've had a really strong design presence you know it's particularly graphic design and a lot of that material we've collected in the museum um the original iconography you know and that's what made it extreme terrain so powerful with this very clear graphic identity mm. um and artistic aspect to their to their project very clear statements very clear um, colors fantastic logo the hourglass logo and so on but architecture not so much so, so one of the movements we have seen here is called architects declare and i think it's true in australia as well which is that architects declare to go zero carbon and it was a great you know and everybody signs this pledge all these practices sign sign the pledge and it was a great kind of pr move they got lots of press and everybody said well done but it's very easy to declare <laughs> it's much harder to do it so you know all some of these practices who declared and it you know it doesn't really matter who it is but they've since announced they're doing airports and you just think well those two things can't coexist you can't declare to go zero carbon and then design an airport it just doesn't and they say oh well the airport's going to have solar panels and you think yeah but it's the it's the infrastructure of the old world like if you were serious about this rather than just getting good press you would you would have to say no to that job and that's the you know that's the the, the confrontation with reality that is has yet to happen mm. um and i think that you know i'm really disappointed in architecture for not being brave enough both to 
reject the old world, but to shape the new world. You know, we are in the ultimate position to shape the new world. Yeah. We can imagine that vision and we can chart a path towards it. But instead, we're too dependent on the old world and we haven't been able to cut ourselves off from it and realign with the new world. So, you know, yeah, I have to say I'm extremely disappointed in architects and I just think that, you know, if we looked at our contributions by some measures, I mean, it's not architecture's contribution, but it's it's the built environment's contribution is something like 40% of carbon emissions. You know, if we took responsibility for that, not just by putting solar panels on airports, then, you know, that would require a huge shift in the way that we work and the, how we build and, and the, you know, ways that we conceive of cities altogether. And it's, at, you know, it's every single stage. You know, we just shouldn't be using concrete or steel, full stop. That's just got to end. Um, we shouldn't be building in places which are car dependent. You know, we, we have to stop doing that unless it's connected by infrastructure which is green, public transport or bikes. You know, so these are really big, tough choices for architecture and we, we just, I don't think we're capable of making them. We need to be shocked into submission um, in order for that, us to make that jump because it's too, the, the old world is too lucrative, it's too promising, it's, you know, we don't have the skills. We need to completely relearn what we do to not build out of glass specified from a catalogue, but to, you know, build completely out of sustainable materials. Very few architects are capable of that. And we need to um, transition the whole discipline. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. These are really bold statements, but, but I totally agree with you. I think it's, it's just human being habitual and it's just really hard for them to leave the old practices and, you know, turn to the new ones. But I think, I mean, at least from an education-wise, at the universities and stuff, they started to have sustainable built environment department or like the places. So it's evolving, but maybe it's just too slow. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, that's the I have huge hope in the in the generation coming through now you know it's it's not just that they care which they do deeply but they are training themselves to have the skills to make that change um, and they're you know and their principles and their and their morals and their ethics are of a level which you know will hopefully be able to resist that pull towards the old world mm. yeah yeah you are creative and colorful if you had a chance to redesign a place it can be anywhere you want given the circumstances covid and climate crisis where would you focus your attention <laughs> yeah it's a good really good question um, and i think about this a lot <laughs> where would especially the where would i focus my attention part you know, it's very it's very easy to make a big list of things which we should do, but then you're immediately faced by, well, who's going to do it and how is it going to happen and how are we going to pay for it? So the where, I, where I'm interested in focusing my attention now is on the public realm and creating more of it 
and creating a, a citizens who are responsible, for, who feel responsible for that public realm. So one of the ways that I'm imagining, you don't, you know, the Nolly map, which is a Renaissance map of Rome, I think, um, drawn by a guy called Nolly, and it showed all the spaces that you could walk through as a part of the elite. So it's a figure ground map, black on white, showing all the streets white, but also the insides of all the churches and the public buildings are drawn in white against black. And it's this wonderful thing because it's like, this is the public territory of a citizen. This is the space that you can walk into unimpeded, that's open to you. And if you were to draw a similar map today of a just to use the suburbs again as an example, you would have a kind of tiny skinny line, which is the shape of the footpath, which is yours. Yes, the road is technically public, but you can't walk on it because it, you'll get run over. And then people's houses, their backyards and everything would be all black because they're private too. So you've just got this very skinny white line of where you're able to walk as a, as a public citizen today. And my question is, how do we expand that line? How do we make that white space as big as possible? And that means taking down fences between houses so that we have a much bigger shared public realm for, um, you know, we can use each other's swimming pools or basketball hoops or grow vegetables or have shared childcare in our backyards. And also expanding that white line in front in the, in the roads. We should be closing off streets to cars. We should be you know, using that territory productively. We should be ripping up tarmac to let water seep back into the ground. Um, and all of it should become a kind of public, social, productive space of care. And that's the key word for me is caring. You know, with that big public realm, we, can now, we now have the space which is ours. It's not mine or yours, it's ours. It's a mm. shared territory, it's a shared responsibility. And it allows us to collectively together to have the space and the infrastructure to look after each other. And that's where I want, I would focus my attention is on creating more spaces, which is ours. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's like reintroducing the comments and yeah, there, there are a few really important people who just talk about this reintroducing comments as you said just and get getting rid of the fences and other things and instead of using the term of ownership it's just um it's for everyone and it's for comments ah beautiful i love that <laughs> super <laughs> rory thank you so much for taking the time it's great talking to you <laughs> Super. Thank you, Denise. Thanks for great questions and um, best of luck. <laughs> for this episode, I'd like to say special thanks to Rachel Raymond for editing the script and Chris Fortis for his technical support. I'm Denise Yildiz and thanks for listening. <laughs>